Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm giving you my perspective on the Freedom Convoy. I'm I'm so sorry. It's a whole thing, and I have received a ton of questions about it, so I just want to give you my response. And I'm also answering your questions on how to not compare yourself to past lovers. It can be a real buzzkill in the bedroom if you're like, oh, but how did they do it? Am I doing it as well as them? I also share my interview with social worker, host of Allyship is a Verb podcast, and LGBTQ plus educator, Chris Angel Murphy. Chris Angel and I, yeah, we get a bit vulnerable in this episode, and we also share some advice on how to generally not be an asshole on dating apps. But first, today in sex. For anyone that's been listening to the news of what's been going on for the past three weeks up here in Canada, uh, you probably would have heard of something called the Freedom Convoy. This essentially started as a trucker rally about like COVID-19 protocols and you need to show mandatory vaccination in order to cross into the U.S. border and then come back into Canada. But what has happened to this Freedom Convoy is that for three weeks, there has been a group of people outside of the parliament in Ottawa, honking their horns incessantly and making living there really atrocious. The Freedom Convoy was founded on this idea that we want to get rid of all COVID-19 restrictions, that we don't like the idea of big government telling us what to do, and we want to stop mandatory vaccine passports, wearing masks in public, and just telling the world to, let's move on. We're ready to say goodbye to COVID-19. However, It may have started out that way, but it has been co-opted by like white supremacist groups who have been flying neo-Nazi flags, who have been flying Confederate flags, who have been receiving funding from all sorts of different nefarious groups. And the thing that's really upsetting is how this has been addressed by the government and telling us whose bodies we value and which we don't. There have been a whole bunch of social movements that have happened over the last two years in particular. I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm talking about indigenous land sovereignty, about stopping pipelines, about stopping old growth forests from being cut down. But the thing that's really upsetting is that when people of color are on these front lines who are fighting for environmental justice, for rights and freedoms, for the elimination of racism and racial subjugation, the police response to them has been quite violent, right? We have had tear gas. We've had people going behind enemy lines, as it were. And the thing that is really upsetting about what's happening in Ottawa is that this same approach has not been taken. Why is that? Because most of the people in the Freedom Convoy are white. And it has become so bleak and so apparent that our institutions are steeped in racism, in homophobia, in sexism, in misogyny, that we are seeing people share images of hate and not having that be shut down right away. So you're probably wondering, Leah, what does this have to do with sex? Well, the main point is sex does not exist in its own microcosm, right? Our race, our gender, our orientation, where we live in the world, our political beliefs, all of these things have an impact on us as sexual beings. And if we are anxious about things that are happening in the world around us, if we are feeling unsafe to go out in the street and share our opinions, then that is going to have an impact in the bedroom as well. So no, I am not a part of the Freedom Convoy. Um, I don't support it um, in any way. I want to recognize that there are definitely people who are part of it who are not white supremacists. However, when their voices are added to a movement that has centered hate is something that is really important to them, then I'm sorry, that is not the way for us to move forward. Anyway, those are my ideas based on the Freedom Convoy. Um, If you haven't heard about it, I will share some links down in the description. Uh, And hopefully it's over soon? Question mark? Who knows? Also, just as a reminder that Canadians, I think we like to think that we're like so much better than Americans. We're so much more tolerant, quote unquote. Um, Yeah, simply not the case. So yeah, if you want to know more about it, great. If you're sick and tired of hearing about it, I am so sorry. So folks, I am really excited to share my interview with Chris Angel Murphy with you today. 
Chris Angel shares some really intimate details about their life, and it was such an honor to have them on and to hold that space together to share their stories with you. I really hope you enjoy it, and I cannot wait for you to listen. So Chris Angel Murphy, it's so lovely to have you back on the podcast. And I know having had you come into my class and talk to my students and, you know, you and I and our emerging friendship, what I have loved thinking back on that first conversation we had and something that I've heard a lot from listeners that was really impactful to them is how our sexual orientation, but even more than that, like our gender identity, our sense of self can really change over time. So I kind of wanted to check in with you. You know, it's been like six or more months. Where where are you at on your own self-discovery journey? Yeah, I so appreciate you asking that. And I will say thank you for having me back. And yeah, it was a delight speaking with your class, loved connecting with your students. And Oof, what's changed? A lot? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So yeah, always always questioning things as far as the gender, sexuality, and and, and all of that. Um, you know, those pieces. But yeah, so, something that's like really come up for me, I'd say in the past, let's see if I can do math. In the past like two months or so, is there's been some added layers of being someone who is late diagnosed for ADHD. And I've also self-diagnosed autistic. And I know that can be challenging for folks to wrap their heads around and consider it like automatically is not valid, but it is very valid because Mm -hmm. our medical models are very gatekeepy. And I will quickly say that the first person I reached out to, to even get an ASD diagnosis basically said, well, you're going to be hard pressed to find someone who takes insurance because they don't pay enough. You're going to probably have to pay out of pocket. And then you're also going to have to go to your insurance company, tell them these codes, see if they'll reimburse you for anything. And otherwise my fee is anywhere between 2000 and 2,500. And I will gatekeep the information until you pay me in full to tell you what like the final diagnosis is. And I'm like, okay, so you're taking someone who already struggles with executive functioning, which is part of that. And you're then putting like an additional financial burden on me. Like I get health insurance needs like a huge revamp in terms of how we approach it so that people are paid their worth and that also I can access the services I really need. But like, that's a hard no for me. I'm not doing that. So I just think that the reason why it's important for me to share those is because they're new lenses for me. And as I'm having all of these light bulb moments, I need to acknowledge that because a lot of things in my past, when I think about them, I've written off as, oh, well, that was the poverty. That was childhood trauma. That was like CPTSD stuff. That was, you know, gender dysphoria. But like these lenses are absolutely important in these conversations too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it just feels like for folks listening, it feels important to share that these are new things about myself that I'm learning And yeah, just like going back on my timeline and going, oh, interesting. Like just, yeah, looking with these new lenses now. So it doesn't take away from those other lenses that I've already looked through, but like these just add further nuance and and clarity in a way that I didn't have before and didn't know was missing. So yeah, I'd I'd say that's the most nutshell version of of where I'm at right now in in terms of like big identity shifts. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that too. Like I know that again, like you said, like it's relatively new and it's emergent and, and having those lenses to kind of, um, make sense of yourself across time as well. Like it's not just like, okay, moving forward. This is how I understand it. But I really like how you, how you've talked about like reflecting back on things that have happened in your life. You're like, Oh, might I understand this situation now that I know this about myself? And I think, I think how rich that is, right? Where the more that we learn about ourselves, the more that we find these different lens or framework in which to understand our lived experiences, we can kind of go back and 
not necessarily like rewrite the stories of our lives, but be like, oh, how can I like revise and edit and think about this, this story arc, which is my life, which is the only one that I'll have to make sense of and make meaning of. And if I know, the more that I know about myself, the more empowered I am in that knowledge, the more it feels, um, I don't know, is power, is empowering the right term? Is that how it kind of feels? Oh yeah. I'm nodding. Um, I'm absolutely nodding to that. Yeah. Cause I'd say some of the biggest aha moments from this are the additional layers of masking I do. And I don't mean because of the pandemic, but like, you know, the code switching and deciding how much of my authentic self I can bring into a particular space. So there's already some general code switching that can occur or may occur for people broadly in the LGBTQ plus community, you know, like talking, like sharing about having a partner versus a girlfriend, if it might signal that someone's part of the community, things like that. So like the, the wording that we choose, the things that we decide to wear to express ourselves, et cetera, all of that, we can like code switch. So there's part of, there's that part. And then there's like all of the code switching and the masking, especially socially, which is utterly exhausting, which is why I understand now why I have such fatigue. And I've felt like the pandemic has broken me and it has in a way. And I'm grateful for that in this moment. I am grateful for that. Um, There's a lot of work to do, but I, I think what's happened and a lot of folks are coming to find that they're neurodivergent and that how, how it sort of manifested for me Um, and people may roll their eyes at this, but part of how it manifested for me was that I was in a social work job and then the pandemic happened and just something about that combo broke me. And I could sit here analyzing it forever, um, you know, with you and the listeners. However, um, it did. I I felt broken and I am. And and, and I I don't mean... I'm just going to leave it as as that because that's just like where I'm at right now and I need to honor where I'm at. However, I can never go back to what I, where I was before because number one, I was quote unquote high functioning, which wasn't serving me anyway, and it wasn't sustainable. And so now that I know I can never go back to that, what does that mean for how I need to love myself and what kind of conversations do I have to have with people so that I can bring more of myself um, to, you know, my friendships, to any future romantic relationships, et cetera, like works, work dynamics, all of it. it. There's not one single aspect of my life that isn't impacted by both ADHD and autism. So it's just giving me a lot to think about. And yeah, just, you know, I've been feeling broken for 34 years. I'm going to be 35 this year, but I've, I've been genuinely feeling broken. And I could tell you the exact moment in second grade where the masking, and the hiding and, and all of that started. And yeah, there's just, there's going to be a lot of healing and a lot of great moments where um, I'm able to see myself in other people's stories because there's like these expansion packs that come with ADHD and it's like buying Pokemon cards and not knowing which ones you're going to get. And you hope for some good ones, but like auditory stuff or um, rejection sensitivity and, and things like that. So there, there's just like a lot. I'm learning. And I will say, and this is the part where people are like, probably going to eye roll potentially, but a lot of it had to do with TikTok. Honestly, TikTok Mm -hmm. helped me to find this out. There was a friend or is a friend rather that I've connected with on Instagram. And she started sharing about her ADHD and what that looks like for her and sharing good tips and things like that. And then somehow very quickly, as soon as I like signed up for TikTok, and this was only like late in 2021, um, quickly stumbled into the ADHD part of TikTok and then quickly the combo part. And I'm so grateful because Mm. if people hadn't been so honest and vulnerable and just, yeah, weren't willing to share their stories in the way that they have been, I don't think I ever would have figured this out because especially as someone who was assigned female at birth, it's just usually un- underdiagnosed for mm-hmm. us. And so there were several people along the way that could have caught this and didn't. And now how this also comes back to the love doctor, you know, is that especially for things like dating, I have to figure out what what this changes for me, what kind of conversations I need to have in addition to the other ones of the complex layers of being queer and trans and non-binary. 
there's a lot that comes up for that. Mm-hmm. I always love hearing you speak so eloquently about your journey as well. And I, I, it's something that I'm thinking about is right. That knowledge of, as soon as you have that of yourself of knowing that there's, there's no going back. Right. And that can be a really scary and vulnerable place to be in. Like absolutely folks who are listening, Chris Angel, not in their head at me right now, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I just think it, it is a scary place to be in, but also one of those only places where we can grow. And for, for me and my own journey that, you know, attention to like sexual shame and where does that live in my body and how do I unpack that? Like as soon as you understand one aspect of it, then you like look back at like childhood or early relationships and you're like, aha, I see all of these things. Um, and that can be really scary to also like bring into like a new dating situation, right? And one of the kind of the dualities of social media, as you and I know, as podcasters, who's people who have Instagram accounts, who share um, our lives and our work online, it can be really amazing because people can be vulnerable and share those parts of their stories. Like you said, like TikTok was a way for you to understand yourself through the stories of others, which is like so amazing. Um, and what you hope that these platforms can do. But at the same time, like the amount of like vitriol and comments and like bullshit that can happen um, on these spaces as well. Valentine's Day can leave a lot of folks feeling awful about their love life. But regardless, if you are single, you're partnered, you have multiple partners, whichever, that doesn't mean you can't indulge in some self-love. That's why I'm excited to be partnering with Beducated, which is the Netflix of sexual wellness. Beducated is an online course platform with lots of different ways to learn from videos and audio to written guides on how to improve various aspects of your sex life. You can learn all about solo practices for folks with vulvas and solo practice for folks with penises. And what I love in particular is the inclusive language used in their courses and having advice from actual experts and sex educators. One course I've been enjoying lately is Full Body Massage by Jaya Shivan. And I mean, obviously, full body massage, how could you not enjoy it? I'm also really trying to normalize outer course as a form of sex and pleasure that can be really fun and can create intimacy between you and your partner or partners. Now, for this course, there are actually two different ways to learn. You can choose to move through the modules to learn each technique individually and focus on specific techniques or parts of the body. You can also jump right ahead and follow along with a full video while massaging your partner or partners. Now, for the listeners of the Love Doctor podcast, you can try all of the Beducated courses for one day free. If you love it, you can get 65% off the yearly pass with my coupon code LOVEDOCTOR. If you want to try month to month to level up your love life, you can join Beducated for $9.99 a month. If you sign up for Beducated now, whether it's yearly or monthly, you will have access to a huge library of courses that will get you and your partner or partners going, ooh, Ah, oh my, mm, mm, yeah, baby, mm, yeah. <laughs> so check out Vegucated.com using the link in the episode description and use the coupon code LOVEDOCTOR to start your sex education journey. So if we're thinking, I know this isn't coming out on Valentine's Day, but we're talking on Valentine's Day. And I think, you know, I'm thinking a lot about that duality of social media, like how like dating apps has like fundamentally changed how we date, how we share our preferences, how do we share things about ourselves. So I want to ask you kind of like, like two things, like first thing, I don't know if, if it, I'll let you decide which one you want to answer first, but like personally, what is that going to look like for you going forward? Like putting yourself out there in the dating realm with these new lenses that you have. And also how do we not be assholes when we're dating? Like, how do we just generally be better human beings, uh, particularly if we're using dating apps? For sure. And I really appreciate those questions and yeah. like the honesty and directness of the second one. I will say for the first one, I don't want to date anytime soon because mm. this has really blown open my world. And, you know, other language 
that people may be able to understand a bit better is uh, like the burnout of like finding out this information and like hitting this wall as hard as I have. And there's a lot of work to do there to like, just, yeah, better understand how this is showing up for me and, and everything. And so there's that part. So definitely as best as I can finding a therapist I can work with who can help me have that safer space to explore these dynamics and ideally has at least some of the same lived experience. Um, yeah. Cause, cause that feels important. The other part of it is yeah. How do people not be jerk faces? Um, just <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I mean, the, the easiest way for me to do that is, is to lean on storytelling. And so I, there's just like, and my brain immediately wants to go like 20 million places. So I will say as far as my experiences, when I've tried to just like hook up, that's been its own thing. Mm -hmm. Usually it's with cis guys, whether they are straight or queer of some sort, usually cis gay men. And I, I think back to one of the first dates I went on with a white cis gay man back when I was living in Los Angeles. Um, he totally like on our first date, like applauded himself for being so like evolved that he was even on a date with me. And I'm just sitting there like, seriously, I wish everyone could see your face right now. <laughs> I'm literally using my finger to raise my eyebrow because I cannot raise it physically <laughs> enough on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That. And then it was one of those things where like, I tried to give him a free pass and you know, continued to try to date him, but we really awkwardly stumbled through that. And so I'll say like with those kinds of experiences, especially back when that was happening and I'm going to hurt my brain for a second, trying to think of what year that was. Goodness. I don't know, maybe 2015, 2016, something like that. Yeah. Just trying to date cis gender, you know, gay men in particular has been really hard because the experience I had was that, and I'm just going to be kind of vulgar here. They were swiping with their dicks. They'd just be like, oh, you're cute. I'd hit it. And then what would happen is we would match and then they'd only go and read my profile and then they'd unmatch. So there was a lot of that, which created a lot of problems for me. So I'm, I'm of the camp for myself and every person who's trans or has something that they feel like they want to be upfront about and share. Cause maybe it's like a non-negotiable or deal breaker, potentially whatever, you know, we, we have to make those decisions for ourselves. We don't owe it to anyone, but we owe it to ourselves to decide what's going to feel best for us. But like, for me, I didn't want to have to weed through and then be like, okay, well, I have to tell you something and, and all of that. Like, no, just like be on board or not, except that it also opens me to being a fetish or something for people to try, you know? And so that did not go well at all. And I feel like a lot more of the gay cis men that I was trying to date better understood like trans guys and that, but not so much like me being either non-binary, non-binary, or even further back when I was identifying as genderqueer. It just wasn't something they were familiar with. And so that added an extra layer to things that made things challenging. But I also saw horrible things where their bios, and I'm talking about like Grindr, Scruff, even Tinder, OKC, but especially Tinder and, and Scruff and Grindr, where they would have the audacity to say things like no femmes, no Asians, mask for mask, discreet, stuff like that. And you could feel the self-hatred through, you know, and also the, you know, the hatred and, and not understanding of other people. And for me, it's like, wow, you really said that out loud, you know, and I absolutely would not swipe right on those folks, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't believe it. And yeah, so that just felt like a minefield. And so it felt a lot safer to date women or people of other genders outside of anyone who was a cis guy of any sort. Um, Sometimes I absolutely lowered my standards if I was just like horny or wanting to like <laughs> whatever. Uh, yeah, sleep my way through some issues I was going through at the time. And that's fine. And that's valid. And 
you know, and it felt empowering and everything, but I definitely lowered my standards because I was just looking to just, yeah, do the task and and move on. It wasn't for like a genuine connection or anything, but yeah, so there was that piece. And then my, a lot of like my other experience relies heavily on being with cis women, most of whom I was like their first person who happened to be trans and navigating the awkwardness of that, like the relationship felt like a more natural fit. I mean, cause number one, we were usually passing as a straight couple. Mm. So there was a level of like security with that. But then the other part of it too, was just, it was hard because especially in my first big relationship, which started back in 2010 and we were in our early twenties and we were each other's first big relationship. I mean, there were a lot of learning curves there for both of us, but all of that to say, you know, taking on the emotional labor of potentially like helping someone to better understand my experience and how to treat people. Not everyone once is up for that. And Mm -hmm. I do think it's important for folks to do their own research and work and not and with the understanding that like, just because you've one met like one trans person, you've met them all. But I mean, there's a reason I've seen a lot of trans people now and not a lot. I mean, I can't give you a number, but I'm seeing a growing amount of trans people only dating other trans people. Mm. And I don't know that like, that's where I'm headed necessarily. Although I get it because you can share this like similar experience and but yeah it's just a lot so i think that's how i wanted to open <laughs> open this quite like open the like yeah the conversation for those questions that you posed is is starting with that as my background yeah no and i appreciate you sharing that because i think right hearing the stories of like of other people's experiences i think it also you know brings some humanity back to dating apps as well. Like, I think when people are like, oh, well, these are just my preferences. You're like, "Mm, okay, you can't just like list preferences that are like inherently you have not done any work to unpack, you know, are they deeply misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, fatphobic? Like there's so many other things in there. Um, But like you said, I think there's definitely around like setting boundaries and expectations of that and how that can be something that happens like right at the beginning on a dating app, depending on what you like write in your bio. And also you're like, this is what I am looking for. Cause I think that's where so many of our like emotions and things where people get hurt is when we are unclear on what the expectations are of this relationship. Like, is this a hookup? Is this a fling? Will this grow into something else? And I think it's, it's similar, right? When we have conversations around like cheating and what does that look like and how people just make assumptions that the, you know, the partner or partners that they with, they're, they're with have the same understanding of that. Yeah. So it's just, it's a strange world where because you get to be a bit more anonymous, people tend to be like a bit more like rude. Like, is that? I feel like that's what happens as a social media phenomenon. Like how shitty that is, that that is the thing that comes up. Obviously not everyone, but that seems to be like a theme that comes up out of humanity. We're like, aha, like you're just seeing my face, but we don't actually have to interact with each other as human beings until this connection happens. So I can like ask you really, really, I can ask you really inappropriate questions or I can like send you unsolicited dick pics or body pics or whatever else. It's like, huh, it's a minefield out there right now. Like, I mean, I I was on Tinder, like, I don't know, a while ago. And I was like, oh, my goodness, like, uh, how do we just bypass all of this process? Yeah. And I think what I would add to your second question in particular is it's not even that, like, people can be assholes because that's part of it. But as people from marginalized communities, we have to decide what we're willing to tolerate and accept. And because I didn't love myself, especially at that point back in 2010, when I'm thinking about this like really big relationship that happened for me, I just would tell myself stories like no one else is going to love me like how she does or that, you know, I 
that she did love me. It was just going to take her time to come around. But she time and time again showed me how she really felt. And I needed to just take that at face value and leave. But it was just one of those relationships where I didn't realize that we were caught in a horrible, vicious cycle. And it took me four years to finally get out. And now, you know, a decade later, I mean, I'm still impacted by it. There's still a part of me who's like always going to love her for what it was because she also was like heavily wrapped up into major, major moments of my life where, and this is where I would make excuses for her because she was there during my early like physical and medical transitions. She was there during my top surgery. She was like the only person I was able to introduce to my dad and my grandma before they eventually passed away from their own like health struggles. And so I didn't want to let that go because I thought it was so important that someone have that context when being with me that like, that was like another reason I didn't want to leave or I was having a hard time leaving. And so when I think back to when I first told her about like top surgery and the excitement I had, I remember she was sitting on her couch of her apartment. I was standing in front of her almost like I was about to give her this like presentation or something. I don't know. And I was just exciting, excitedly, you know, standing in front of her saying, Oh my God, babe, guess what? Like I'm going to have top surgery. And I was ecstatic. And she was just like, there was no reaction. Mm. Like it was like, she turned her face off. Just, it was just blank. And I was like, aren't you excited for me? And I just remember her saying something to the effect of, well, I, I just don't understand how anyone could be excited about surgery. That was like the next thing she said. And I was like, it, well, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's about what it represents. It's mm-hmm. about like how it's going to make me feel in my body. And then that's when I learned that she couldn't support me in that way, at least at that time, because she was worried about like what that was going to mean for her attraction toward me because she liked my chest. And it's like, how do I explain to you that like this part of me that you like, I don't, I don't necessarily hate it, but it doesn't feel like it honors me. And it's having people view me for through a very certain lens that doesn't feel good or affirming to how I want to move around in the world. Mm-hmm. Like I want my chest gone in that way. Like I want a flat chest But then she was also hell bent on being the person who helped me through the recovery. And I'll never forget, like, and I I was so terrible about being honest about what I needed um, because I'm, I'm not great with conflict and things like that. And I think it comes back to the autism stuff because I have to learn how to deal with social stuff by watching neurotypical people or watching like successful, whatever that means, like neurodivergent people who have figured out how to navigate this stuff to like regurgitate whatever I need to say so that like everyone's clear on what I'm needing or asking for. And so I just, I didn't have examples of that because, and I I don't know how to like say this, but I was like, I was a lot of people's first trans person in their life. I didn't have a lot of examples of people to look up to. Mm -hmm. And so I was just awkwardly stumbling around myself to figure things out. And I was able to help give other people the courage and, and everything that they needed so that they could welcome and invite people in uh, about them being trans. And I'm I'm so grateful that I could be that person for others. I just didn't have a lot of that myself. And so things like being in this, like, honestly, like abusive relationship, it was just, it was just incredibly difficult to get out of because it felt like too many things were were wrapped up in it. So, you know, there are moments like that, that didn't feel good for me. And like, so I, I remember you know, when I was able to take off the dressings and stuff and see my flat chest for the first time, I was in such a panic over it because I knew it wasn't going to look good. I mean, there's bruising and stuff. Cause you know, I've just had this major surgery. I had to like kick um, my girlfriend at the time out of the bathroom and be like, hold on. I need a minute. I had to sit at the edge of my tub and just like breathe and give myself a minute to like brace myself for whatever I was about to see and then invited her back. And I'm sure that hurt her feelings, but like, I really just needed a moment to myself. Mm -hmm. And then she was able to come back in. I called her back in and and we, you know, did the whole thing. But um, I mean, where I'm at now in my life, I would handle things very differently, but all I can do is send love and kindness for where I was at at that time, because 
I was just dealing with a lot and so much more than I could possibly know. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, when other things would come up on our relationship, like, and, and I don't know, this is kind of like hard to talk about, but I want to talk about it. So I appreciate you like holding this crunchy space with me. But another thing that happened was like name stuff, you know, I was going by Riley Quinn at the time, like Riley Quinn Murphy. I was going to like super duper change my name in that way versus how I'm Chris Angel Murphy today. Because I think this arc that happens that we're taught is, well, I've, I've known I was trans from, you know, an early age and I hated this about myself and that, and I only played with these toys and this is how I knew. And, no, 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 no. and like Jacob Tobiah in their book, Sissy does this like great, like poking fun at that narrative. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that feels good. Cause I hate feeling like I have to fit this like archetype of what it means to be trans. And so, mm-hmm. so there were sort of a few things going on at that time. And this is a big, big vulnerability piece for me, but mm. I was named Christina Angelina Murphy. And I thought to be trans, I had to hate her to be trans. And so when I initially thought about chopping my name in half to Chris Angel Murphy, I just thought that was just too close to her. So even though it fit and it felt good in some ways, I felt like I had to go even further away from that. So I was like, if I'm really going to be quote unquote genderqueer or non-binary, then, then let's like really gender neutral up the names and stuff. And so as I was meeting that partner at that time, I was, I was testing the waters with Riley Quinn Murphy and it felt good at first, but then it quickly became this clutch of she wasn't honest with her family about who she was. Mm. So they assumed I was her boyfriend and luckily because they thought I was Riley, they couldn't look up things about me because they were like, I don't know, classic Italian family, whatever you want to make of that. Like what's, what's his social security number and all that like protective (laughs) crap. Right. So like, you know, I'm sure they tried to like find stuff online and they couldn't find anything, which probably also made more red flags for them. But I mean, part of the ongoing joke was that they thought I was her gay boyfriend. And so like when we're talking about masking and hiding, like, I mean, I was so profoundly uncomfortable around her family. Anytime we had to like be around them for something like holidays and stuff, because I just didn't even know how to show up at all because I had to hide so many things about myself. I don't think any of myself was left there. And now, like I said, in this moment, even chatting with you, I'm like, damn, that's a lot, but that's, that's where it was. And she didn't ask me to do any of that. And she absolutely used my pronouns at the time, which even back then were also they, them, she was great about that. But like, we try to have these conversations where she'd be like, well, you have no idea what it's like for me because I'm scared to like come out to them and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're right. Because like my own family didn't kick me out. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like you're wanting me to hold space for you that I can't fucking hold for you because your family is being horrific to me. And you want me to put all of those feelings aside and shut that off and be present for you and like what's going on for you. But I can't because I'm reeling from what you just shared about me or, you know, from, from like, you know, things that they're saying about me, like behind my back and all of that. So like, I can't be that person to support you through this because this is causing me a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And we just, yeah. So, I mean, there were a lot of ways in which it was hard for both of us. And again, it was just like this horrible, vicious cycle for four years. And so I'm not completely saying that the whole relationship was garbage. I'm also not trying to paint her to be this deeply flawed human that added, you know, all of this trauma to my life. I'm I'm just trying to like be very, very, very honest and vulnerable about a very crunchy time in my life that was very complicated, very confusing. And, you know, she was just very much immersed in that. And I I, she has her own stories and all that. I'm, I'm not trying to disclaimer away everything that I've just shared because my story is also valid, but I'm just holding com- like the space that and the tension that it's just a very complicated, nuanced relationship. And I'm not trying to say anything badly about her. I'm, I'm just trying to be very, very honest about what my experience was like, because that's all I can really speak to. Yeah.
I'm kind of like sitting in, like you were saying, in that crunchiness and in that tension, right? Where our relationships, when they finish, they are the stories, right? That we tell ourselves, that we tell others. And like you said, the more that you took up space for yourself and took up that time to look after yourself, the more you're realizing the vicious cycle that it was. And I think that's the really awful thing with those types of relationships is that, you know, um, not at all to equate those experiences, but having been in an abusive relationship before, you don't fully understand it until you were on the other side. And you're like, oh, shit, that's what happened there. And of course, they were dealing with their own shit. But how they treated me was unacceptable. And knowing that both of those things are true is something that's that's really hard to hold and i think yeah i think i think you did that beautifully in kind of showing the complexity of that thank you mm-hmm. yeah it's <laughs> like i said even 10 year like over 10 years later it's still hard and crunchy to talk about and there's been enough time and space that it doesn't feel as fresh And, you know, these are conversations I won't get to have with her because I don't think, I don't think we'll, I don't know. I, (laughs) I don't know what I believe as far as afterlife and all that, but I just don't think it's anything we'll be able to sort out in this lifetime because I'm too afraid for what all that would open and getting caught in that cycle again, knowing how long and and hard it was for me to get out. And I, I think, well, I won't spiral there. <laughs> uh, I, I won't let myself spiral there today. There was a different tangent I was going to go on. So I just want to say that it is complicated. And while people can be assholes, I need to know that I'm worthy and deserving of love. And especially a love that can feel good to me. So, you know, as far as things that I think are helpful, I mean, there's definitely no-nos as far as maybe don't ask me about my birth name because that's still crunchy for me, you know, and this is my first time publicly, like really claiming and owning Christina because another recent discovery I've had is, yeah, Christina doesn't have to die for me to exist. I have... And I'm learning, I'm probably going to cry now, which is great because I need the release, but, you know, I don't have to hate her because I'm only here today because of her. And so when we come up in our terms or, you know, come up in our community with terms like dead naming, it just feels horrible because again, I feel like it reinforces that narrative that like she has to die for me to exist and live. And, Mm. you know, I'm I am in a place in my life where I want to reclaim that and I want to shine a light on her because damn she's strong. Damn she's resilient. And you know, I think I've had this story like you mentioned story in my head playing out that oh well I have to protect her and all this stuff. Bullshit. I'm here because of her. Mm. And so, yeah, I just I want to honor her better. I want to shed a light on her better. And I want to get more comfortable with just being able to bring her name up. And I'm kind of talking about her like she's her own person and she kind of is, but like, I just don't want to erase that history because it's, it's important to my story too. And so, um, yeah, that, that feels really important to acknowledge. And so I guess, I guess the loose tip I am (laughs) attempting to unearth here is that when there's like crunchy conversations like that with things like birth name, et cetera, like maybe let me lead because I don't want to try to pretend to, you know, speak on behalf of all trans people or people who are non-binary, et cetera. But like, you know, when I'm dating someone, it feels better for those kinds of crunchy conversations to just like, let me lead it. Let me talk about it if I want to. And like, not in a, like a condescending way, support me, like, but, you know, just take great care with how we have those conversations and yeah, just follow my lead. And then also, I mean, you know, in terms of body parts and stuff, I, I know medically what makes the most sense, you know, as far as having conversations with my doctors, but then when I'm like in the bedroom or we're talking about sexy time, I'm just not really sure where I land on terms for that of what feels affirming. I know Mm -hmm. people have come up with different terms 
for themselves that feel good, but like, I just haven't landed on anything yet. So, but I think, I think it's important to have those conversations and, you know, approach it broadly as far as like, well, what feels good for you? And I think that it's inherently been built into a lot of my relationships because I've noticed with a lot of the cis women I've dated, they have their own hangups about like what they call their body parts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is not medical. And a lot of it is the stuff that you might hear parents telling their kids when they're really young, you know, like that's, that's the woohoo or whatever, you know, like, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, that place or whatever, you know? And, and so I think, I think that's added a level of care and complexity to my relationships because with a lot of my partners, there's yeah, been that shared experience of like the crunchiness of what do we call these parts, you know, Mm -hmm. and how do we talk about them in a way that's affirming and, I don't know. Like, I know that media will pump up these ideas that it's so hot and sexy to just like fuck in the moment and whatever, let the passion like take us there. And you're having a reaction. (laughs) I just love all your faces for this, but here's, here's my thing with that or, and, and here's my thing with that is I think that having conversations around boundaries and consent and body parts and what feels good and what doesn't is also really sexy. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be this thing that's like a that like hurts or dampens the mood. I think that when there's genuine attraction there and a genuine curiosity and, and all of that, that you can tap back into that. I just think it's so important to have those conversations because I have no idea what could be triggering for someone. Mm-hmm. There's a word I could use, a way I touch them, you know, and I want it to be as fun and safe as possible. So I I think there's ways to approach that, including starting just broadly with like, hey, so tell me like what feels good for you? What doesn't feel good? And just approaching the conversation that way. It doesn't have to be like, so you're trans. So tell me what to call your body parts and stuff like. And it's not like we can't be a little bit more direct, but I just, I think there's like different ways we could approach it. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, normalizing that idea that like having consent when you're in the bedroom and like openly talking about those boundaries, it's so hot. Like it honestly, where you ask someone, you're like, where do you want me to touch you? Like what language do you want me to use? You know, like, and it's all around, you know, um, like this pleasure based model where it's all like, you know, like, is this good? Do you want me to do it this way? Like, Oh man, someone's whispering that to you while you're in bed. Hmm. I need to excuse myself. No, that's <laughs> the thing is like it's also good to get feedback, right? Like I wouldn't want someone faking an orgasm or something like that, or or feeling like that has to be the end goal. Mm-hmm. You know, there we can have like a hot and heavy makeout session or something, and you know, grind whatever. You know, now we're getting really risque here, but this is the Ooh, Love Doctor grinding. podcast. Mm. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I I don't, and I, there's at least one relationship in particular where my partner was not on board with having these kinds of conversations. Like she shut down so fast and it was horrible for me because it's like, you know, at what point then is something potentially rape if we're not having conversations about where the lines are? Because when you're playfully saying no versus like no meaning, like I'm going to take no as a no. Like, and I'm going to stop. And so like immediately, I don't want to like continue if that's not going to feel good for you. So it just, yeah, if, if I can't normalize those kinds of conversations with my partner, I just don't even want to go there because I Mm -hmm. think it just will lead to like bad things for everybody. And that's not, that's not what I want to do. So yeah, like, I, I think there's ways of, and I love how you talk about like this pleasure model. I think there's ways of talking about consent in a way that doesn't feel like we're reading from some textbook or something, you know, it's just like, but like if someone's close to like orgasming and they're like, don't stop, don't you dare move, not even like a like inch or something, then like message received, I will absolutely, like, I will like not abort the mission and (laughs) I will stay right where you want me to. That is great. And, (laughs) and yeah, like like that feels good for me. And yeah, like I I want my partner to feel good and I want them to feel good in the ways that it feel affirming for them and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, and for time, 
talking about the evolution of identity for a time, like I identified as a stone butch, especially when I thought I was part of the lesbian community. And it just felt easier to avoid, like to avoid my pleasure and focus on the pleasure of my partners. And that's because I have like a whole long history of being a people pleaser and stuff. So that's a whole <laughs> other conversation for another day, maybe, but you know, that's what felt good to me. But then I got feedback from certain partners that like, they wanted to please me in ways that felt good to me too. So we would land on actually I have a cute little story. Uh, there was this one person I was hooking up with and uh, she was cisgender and queer at the time. I, I don't know how she like identifies today or anything, but um, when we were hooking up again, it was like the whole stone butch thing for me. Cause it just felt better. And she was like, yeah, so like, I, I want to do things that feel good for you too. And I was like, well, I really love massage. So like, mm-hmm. if you'd feel comfortable, you know, giving me like a body massage or something like that would feel really good. And <laughs> like she, she went to like the bathroom to go grab uh, some body lotion. And, you know, she started to like work it into my back and everything. And she was like, having to put a lot on me and I was like, whatever. Cause I was like blissed out. Cause like, I love a massage and <laughs> like, but everything was in the dark. So fast forward, I'm like going home, whatever. And she was like, so, um, I got to tell you something. And I'm like, what's up? She was like, I accidentally used uh, body soap. So you're probably going to be super sudsy <laughs> the next time you go to shower. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I, I couldn't stop laughing. Like I just, that was like the best. I mean, it could have been anything. Right. But I, I love that. That's what happened. Um, but like, that was great because it felt like a good mutual exchange, you know, yeah. and that was something we were able to navigate and it didn't take away from the sexiness. And I love being able to laugh, especially about like sex stuff, like farts and all that. Please, can we normalize it? Like, don't be like holding it in or. Yeah, I love that, too. Like those playful, wonderful moments where you have sex and you laugh and like cry or like you said, or like fart, like normalizing things that happen or like queefing, you know, like all sorts of things that happen when people have sex. And we do not talk about it. And I just like, I don't know. I think we try and like fit these like standards of like what sex should look like or whatever. It's like team, funny things are going to happen. Sounds are going to emerge out of your body. And like, you know, hopefully you've created enough of a safe space between like the people that you're having sex with. You can roll with it. And it's like, that's, that's kind of the hope. That's like this fun journey. Right. Last thing I want to ask you about today is I I got a question from one of my followers on Instagram, um, and I asked him if it was okay if I asked you this question. So instead of me answering it on my own, let's let's do this together, Chris Angel. So this person says that I'm a queer trans man that's been following Levi for quite some time on YouTube, and now you and your podcast. And then they hilariously said that sounded way more intense than I intended, but basically I'm a big fan of both of you. They said, I was hoping you might be able to discuss the idea of comparison. Uh, my former partners unfortunately compared me often to the ones before me, and it destroyed my confidence. I wanted to have in-depth conversations about what we liked, what we were comfortable with, and just overall creating a safe space where they felt heard, and it didn't always seem to land very well. And that's okay. It might not be the right person, but due to this shame, I kind of locked down my body in my mind and I didn't know what I liked or what I found pleasurable or anything. And so when I did hook up, which is very rare, I felt so lost and I would try to talk about things, but it just never felt like the right time. And so things were just flat. And then I'd feel shitty about myself because I couldn't satisfy this person that I wanted to make feel loved and safe. And then the spiraling of doubt begins because I haven't had that many partners or much experience due to my shame and trauma. And I don't even know where to begin at this point. That's where they send off. The, and then they say hello to your plant babies and to Levi, which was very lovely. But some thoughts about even if you're trying to have those conversations and maybe they're not landing, but also like that inner saboteur of like comparing yourself to like previous people. What what are some like thoughts or ideas you might want to share with this person? Yeah. I mean, first, I just want to like honor that, like, I found you the same way that they did. Um, I'm not sure. What were the pronouns? Do you know? No, they identify as a trans man. Okay. But they maybe he him, maybe he him, but they didn't send me their pronouns. And and I don't obviously want to share their name because they didn't. But 
Of course. That's all I know. Cool. I will move forward with using he, him, but just because I want to respect the identity and holding space that those may not be the right pronouns. And so I'm awkwardly just trying to say that it sounds like that might be the pronouns that they would like me to use. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, Yeah. So I think there's a lot going on there when we're having these conversations about safer sex. I think there's ways we can do it with some like grace and tact of Mm -hmm. similar to how like, For folks who have explored therapy, you know, therapists can bring up examples and in such a way that we don't know if it's coming from their lived experience, that of their other clients or from research or what, right? And they're just holding a space of ideally like normalizing something for us when when we are needing that. And I think there's a way that we can do that in our relationships that are romantic or of a sexual nature. So we can say, oh, you know, I've had partners that I've found that when they do this one thing, it feels really good. And being able to hold space for, like, even for me, I don't feel safe doing all of the sexual acts that I like to do with every single person I meet. Some of it requires more vulnerability or more openness or more time to develop the trust and everything. So there's things I would do with hookups that I wouldn't do with like more traditional, you know, quote unquote relationships. So I think like there's that part and understanding that just because I've liked something with people previously doesn't mean that like everyone will do it in the way that like I'm wanting or needing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm, how, do, how does that land for you so far before I go on more tangents? Good. I, I really like that idea of like holding space for that conversation, right? And it's not saying, well, my previous partner did this. So just do that because that really worked for me. Because then you're creating this whole like, I don't know, that that would just feel really shitty. And then you're trying to like live up to this person, right? Um, but yeah, putting forward like, you know, what feels really good is this or like, this is something that I'd be interested in exploring. Um, what about you? Like, what are you into? And just maybe like leading with more like, open-ended questions, right? I think that's always a good way to enter into relationships, setting boundaries, and especially in the bedroom. More questions, people. Ask each other questions. Yeah, and sometimes we might find things that we like because of people we've been with. And it could also come from our own self-discovery. So I know every now and then um, someone will mention like connect with yourself, you know, if you need to do like the bubble bath moment and candles and whatever, like feels more authentic. Don't do it just because like other people are telling you to do it. But if you're in your bed late at night, you know, when you're touching like your own chest or your arms or like how lightly or how roughly all of that you know, it's it's been confusing and hard for me to be with partners who haven't done that kind of work because I I don't I don't always want to discover things together. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is I would like for my partner to know enough about themselves that we then can discover things together, but like have some foundational stuff down. So, you know, if I know that someone likes hair pulling in the context of that, you know even, you know, and and then being able to know for myself, like, does it feel good when I'm doing that for other people? Like, is that something that I can give? Maybe, maybe not. So also being able to be honest about my boundaries and yeah, I, I just think, I think it gets really tricky because I'm thinking back to something you've shared with me about like, what's underneath the question you know, that's, that's being asked. And I think I'm trying to like sit with that right now and figure out like what I'm hearing in the question. And I think like for myself, it just feels better to be in relationships where we can approach a conversation with some of the same tools and we're not always going to have the same tools. And so I would like to think I could bring those tools to a relationship and say, Hey, this is how I'd like to approach this. Would you be willing to give this a try and then go from there and see how that works or not? Um, so I, I feel like that helps a lot, but mm-hmm. I definitely resonate with feeling like I just had to be so awesome in bed, you know, and I had to woo people that way because especially like in my early twenties, 
I mean, I did things I would never do now of like bragging about this or that or whatever, you know, now I'm like, oh gosh, Chris Angel, (laughs) but sending love to that version of me (laughs) who felt like they needed to do that, you know, but then realize, but then like, yeah, having my ego completely blown to bits when I would be with somebody else and like, for whatever reason, the sex was like horrible. Like we just weren't on the same page. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, I have been humbled. <laughs> so yeah, I'm curious. I mean, I feel like some thoughts are still brewing for me, but I'm curious how you are approaching the question and what's coming up for you. Yeah. I think the, the thing for me as well, like I've done a lot of like research for my PhD and stuff as well around like sexual shame. Um, and I think that's something that's, that's coming up for me, you know, in this question of like, you're caught in this cycle of shame. That's what it sounds like, listener, you're caught in this cycle of shame, which a lot of time when we experience sexual shame, there's deep roots of that, right? There's roots of that in like body shame and genital shame and general like sexual expression and being a, um, a person who is interested in sex. There's a lot of shame in that as well. So, if we haven't done the work to unpack those things, then understandably it'll manifest in this sexual shame way where we, you know, if we try something else, we have a conversation with someone and it kind of falls flat, like they were saying, that, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, well, like I must be really bad at sex then because I was trying to have this open, beautiful conversation and they totally like rejected me or weren't like vibing with that. So it's hard to say that in terms of addressing shame, that's a lot of our own work. It's not necessarily, it's not our fault that that shame exists. We're not the ones who like imposed it on ourselves. And I can't remember who, who talked about it, but they talk about, um, this garden. I'm pretty sure it's Dr. Emily Nagoski and Come As You Are, where I just love her. I come back to that book quite often about how, right? It's so just, ugh. So good. And like, I I learn new things every time I like read it or little sections, but talking about how we all have these gardens, right? And that could be like our understanding of self. And there are things planted in there that we did not choose from our socialization, from our upbringing, from our family, from society, from so many different things. And as we get older, we get to be the damn gardeners. We can do some weeding, like we can plant new things But we also know that that takes time, that takes nurturance. And so, you know, being kind and gentle with yourself as you're unpacking this and as you're learning, I don't know, we're coming full circle. It's your identity journey. You're emerging. We're here. Be that beautiful butterfly. I don't know. For now, I'm thinking about like, um, like a little caterpillar becoming a butterfly. But you know what I mean? We're on this emergent journey. That's, that's what's coming up for me. I mean, the trans imagery is usually like a phoenix or a butterfly or something. So you're on par with the branding. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you shared. And I guess because it's also still stuff I am working through myself, that's harder for me to answer. And I think part of it too is just like, when do I feel sexy? You know, what do I feel like my strengths are? What are ways I like to please a partner? Is that an alignment? You know, and I, I think it also, yeah, it comes back to the communication of being able to have fun with things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I'm not doing a good job at all of answering <laughs> the question other than just saying like, what, what feels most authentic for me is saying like, I hear you. I resonate with what you're sharing and I hope you're able to find the support that you need while you're going on this journey and love, love the vulnerability of even, you know, asking about this in the first place, because I know for me, and I mean, goodness, probably a large chunk of this episode is I feel like if I can shed a light on something that feels very dark for me that it doesn't have to have that much power over me anymore, you know, but everyone's got their own way of, of getting there. So I guess I just want to normalize that feeling and not like immediately attack the purse, like the, you know, partners, like with the comparison stuff, but yeah, just like encouraging all of us and empowering all of us to approach conversations differently if they're not feeling good. It's just like a chef's kiss. 
moment of what you've just said. I just. I'll take <laughs> your word for it. <laughs> I'm no. not convinced. I feel like I sound like a blubbering Chris Angel no. blob. I don't know. Not at all. No, I really appreciate your vulnerability today and just like your stories and the way that. I don't know. I always enjoy how you and I riff off of each other, but just, you know, y- your ability to be so present and to share so honestly, I just, um, I'm always so floored whenever we get a chance to discuss. And I hopefully call her that is helpful to you. And I'm so glad that we had both of us coming from our own perspectives as a way to address that. I hope that was helpful. And of course, we're going to share resources as well. You know, <laughs> you and I are educators. So we're like, yes, resources, do the reading. Yeah. And it was really hard to not be like, you know, comparison is the thief of joy and all like that's immediately where my brain went. And I was like, Ooh, where did I get that programmed into my brain? Not that there isn't like truth to it, but I was like, don't say that. And then I did anyway. So here yeah. we are. I'm not going to edit it out. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time and more than that, just, just you being your wonderful self and sharing that. And I just, I'm so excited, folks, listeners, the fact that, that we got to, you know, be on that journey and hear about that with you. It's it's a real honor. Thank you for creating a space and having a friendship with me where we can get messy and not be perfect. And um, yeah, like the, this, these kinds of conversations are important for me to have because I want to be honest about my journey and it's really great for me because it's like a timestamp in my life. And then I can look at how far I've come because sometimes I can forget until I'm doing things, you know, like this where I'm like, Oh dang, like, yeah, I have done a lot of work, you know, and, and things can be messy and all of that. So I just appreciate, yeah, you offering a space for us to get into this. And I agree like the, how how we vibe thank you thank you for being you and creating this space and doing this work because i know that you're helping so many Aww, thank you vibing yeah we're vibing we're vibing could we be any more white right now <laughs> <laughs> well, just yeah thankfully you can't see us because now we're dancing mm. Yeah, it's like that what a night at the Roxbury or whatever where they're like at the club yeah. and they're doing like the head bob thing like yeah. that's that's what we Imagine we're doing that right with now. headphones. Mm, it's actually yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to Claire Travers, one of the creators behind Poly Pages, all about polyamory and whether or not polyamory is queer. If you have a question, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com, or you can message me on Instagram at dr.leatidy. You can also check me out on Twitter or Instagram, and if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.